Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're very pleased to have Alexander Kay on the show today to talk about his important new book, The Invention of Jewish Theocracy, The Struggle for Legal Authority in Modern Israel. Alexander Kay is the Carl, Harry, and Helen Stoll Assistant Professor of Israel Studies at Brandeis University. Alexander Kay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get right into the book because it's got some very important perspectives and uh, understandings of an extremely contemporary issue. Uh, First, uh, is the tension between religion and secular authorities unique to Israel? (laughs) Most definitely not. Um, And even if we make the conversation, the the question more complicated, still the answer is that it's not unique. Um, I suppose what what I mean by making it more complicated is that one of the things that I tried to do in my book and I think that many scholars of religion today um, and and also just contemporary history uh, are are working on is to complicate these ideas of, of the secular and the religious. Um, these are categories that are very much in flux and the boundaries are not clear between them. And um, But in contemporary sort of everyday parlance, it's very common to talk about this tension between something which is called religious and something which is called secular. And in that respect, I think Israel is very much uh, not unique. I mean, I'm, I'm currently living in the United States. I teach at Brandeis University. um, And in America, this question of um, attention between religious and secular ideas is one of the burning questions of the day in a very, very contentious um, political atmosphere. And uh, the same goes for, for many countries, including other countries in, in the Middle East, where uh, since certainly since the end of the colonial period, um, there's been all kinds of conflicts between local political movements, ideological movements that have um, very strongly secularist principles and those with more religious or religiously fundamentalist principles. So Israel's definitely not unique in this respect, but the way that these questions and the way that these ideas play out in Israel obviously has a unique spin, just like the other countries do as well. Well, tell us a little about those categories, religious and secular. Do you see them as opposites at different points on a continuum? Is the struggle between them necessarily a zero-sum game in your view? Well, I think the complication between the categories comes from the fact that neither of those words has a really solid definition. There have been all kinds of theorists. Uh, Jose Casanova is one of the main theorists who's, who's tried to struggle with the meaning of the word secular. Um, it, it seems to apply to all kinds of 
different things. Does it mean something about belief? You know, is, is it that um, a secular belief is one that doesn't have a role for God, whereas a religious belief does have a role for God? Is it something about the way that societies are structured? Um, so, for example, one might call, let's say, contemporary America a secular society, and uh, it, meaning that even though many people have religious beliefs, the structure of society and the structure of um, political institutions is such that religious beliefs are, are privatized rather than sort of mobilized in public. Although in America, even there, that's uh, very much far from a simple thing. So the, the term secular has all these complicated uh, aspects to it. And the term religious also, I mean, what do we mean when we say, when we talk about religion? Is it just a, a question of um, a belief in some kind of metaphysics to do with God? Is it a system of values? Is it a, an adherence to a particular political position? Um, and, and of course, all of these things, um, you, you know, maybe you may say yes or no to any one of those different kinds of definitions in both directions. Um, what, what I think um, when it comes to religion in political life is that uh, religious and secular approaches to politics are very often held up as directly opposing each other or as a zero-sum game, as you put it. Um, and the, the way these categories are thought about to come to that conclusion is something like this. Um, the argument might go that secular politics, certainly secular democratic politics, maintains that the source of authority, the source of political sovereignty in a state is the people. Um, that's the definition of, of secular authority, of, of democratic authority, that the that the source of authority is in the people, whereas a religious approach to politics um, would maintain that the source of political authority, like all authority, not just political, but also legal, also moral, is God and not the people at all. And by that definition, it does seem that there's a zero-sum game between these two different um, positions. They each have an answer to what is the source of authority, and that answer is different. But I actually think that um, underlying that apparent difference is a similarity that underpins both positions. And that similarity is um, something that's a product of the particular ways that modern politics has unfolded in the past couple of hundred years. Well, you, since you mentioned the United States, uh, the separation of church and state is an important principle there. And that assumes... Uh, a Christian, specifically a Protestant notion of religion as private and personal, nevertheless, even in America and in European countries as well, who would think of themselves as secular, um, Christmas, for example, remains a legal holiday, um, which Christmas is a religious holiday. So would you say that religion, law, and politics are inevitably intertwined? Oh, of course. <laughs> I definitely, I definitely do think that that's the case. Certainly, with um, certainly when it comes to politics today. I mean, it, 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 it's it's true that as you as you said in America, the separation of church and state is an important principle. Um, and many Americans think that that's somehow absolutely fundamental. Um, but of course, the the term separation of um, church and state or religion and state doesn't appear in the constitution that the term comes from a letter that jefferson wrote um right um but it, it wasn't really mobilized as a legal principle until the middle of the 20th century and 
before that, it was completely, it was considered at least completely consistent um, to have um, judges quoting Christian scripture as, as in, in American courts um, and other aspects of a deep intertwinement between religion and public life that didn't seem inconsistent with the First Amendment of the Constitution. So even in, even in countries like America, where there is this principle, um, it doesn't, uh, it plays out differently in different historical periods. And I would add um, one more thing, which is that this isn't just a case of, of sort of historical accident. So the example that you that you brought up was a great example. America claims to have the separation between church and state, um, but you know Christmas is a federal holiday, and and so on. And that's a matter of of, of practice. But even on a theoretical level, on a on the level of principle, it's actually impossible to completely separate religion and state when it comes to law and legal practice. And the, a scholar called Winnie Sullivan has written about this in, in a couple of places. And, and just to, to put it, just to give one straightforward example of how this doesn't work on the level of theory, um, let's say the American Supreme Court says um, that there has to be a complete uh, protection of religion. The court then finds itself in a position of having to define religion and saying what is religion and what isn't religion, which then automatically brings it into the business of deciding um, how to define people's own practices and ways that they understand themselves. So there's something which is sort of self-undermining when the legal system tries to take itself out of interfering in religious affairs. It then automatically has to bring itself right back in again to define what is construed as religious and what is not. Right, right. They can't get out of it. Right. But in, in contrast to the United States and many other countries, Israel's fundamental narrative is religious. It's biblical, uh, the biblical promised land for the Jews and the story we, uh, we are all familiar with. But even in ancient times, the Jewish kingdoms in Israel, the famous King Saul, David, Solomon, and the others, they had a political king's law that was separate from religious law. So tell us about that. Yes, and that, that's, well, I'm not going to comment on what the actual law was in the time of David, because I'm not um, an ancient historian. So I don't have the competence really to talk about that. And the the historical sources from the period itself are, are slim. Um, but there's no question that um, the Hebrew Bible talks about um, when King Saul was appointed as uh, was appointed as king, the way that that worked was that the people came to the prophet Samuel and said, please appoint a king for us. And Samuel said, no, that would, uh, you know, you have to understand if there is a king appointed over you, that king is going to have all kinds of um, rights as a king. He's going to be able to take away your property. He's going to be able to force you to work for him. He's going to um, be able to tax you. Um, in other words, the king is going to have all of these uh, legal rights, which the rest of you don't have, um, according to the rest of the laws of the Torah. So it did, it, and, and the, the prophet Samuel even refers to that um, using the term uh, mishpat um, the, the law of the king. So it does seem from the testimony of the Hebrew Bible itself that there is this kind of system of norms that apply to um, the ruling of the monarchy that don't apply in other kinds of political circumstances. Um, and I think that the the the, the rabbis and the rabbinical literature um, understood the um, 
the un- understood ancient law and, and and in fact the law of their own times in that same way. There's no question that the rabbis understood themselves as being um, governed by halacha. Um, that that goes without saying. But they also recognized that there were these other independent systems of law that were sort of recognized within the framework of of the Torah, but were not the same either procedurally or in terms of the substance of their rules as halacha itself. So in, if that is the case and was the case for centuries, uh, how did the concept of an halachic state, a Jewish law state, Jewish religious law state, how did that develop? So this is a really interesting story um, that I got completely engrossed in and ended up being like the the central theme of the book. I think that when people look at Israel today, the the term halachic state is um, is very common, and it's it basically stands in for the sense that religious Jews in Israel, or at least some of the religious Jews in Israel have this ideal of the state of Israel being governed by a, a Torah law, being governed by halacha. In other words, rather than the laws of the Knesset or the secular judges or whatever else, halacha should be in charge of the state. And I think that typically speaking, um, there are two common sort of explanations of how this ideology of the halachic state came about. And I think that um, neither of them is quite right, and I offer a third. So I think the two common ideologies, the two common sort of histories of the, the uh, how this idea of the halachic state ar- ar- uh, arose are, on the one hand, um, very ancient, and on the other hand, very recent. So the very ancient position is that there's something um, intrinsic to religious ideas. Uh, there's something about sort of the primordial essence of religious politics that, of course, would mean that any religious person would want um, their religious law to be in charge of the state. And and people that follow this line of thinking would point to all kinds of religious fundamentalist political movements around the world today and say, like, that's the true face of religion, so to speak. And the other position would say that that may not be true at all, but that there is a series of events that happened in Israel really quite recently that led to this sort of uptick of, of boldness of the religious Zionist community, um, which really was the 1967 war and the aftermath of that war and the, the sense of sort of religious euphoria of what was understood to be a miraculous victory um, leading to the rise of the settler movement and the kind of emboldened um, n- religious nationalist um, sector of, of, of Israeli society and becoming just more and more prominent. And, and, I, and I think that um, neither of those stories is exactly right, or at least is neither of them is the whole story. Um, th- the first position that there's something intrinsic to religion that um, leads religious people to to need this kind of totalitarian political idea, I think is wrong for reasons which we already briefly discussed. And um, re- religious communities of all kinds, um, Jewish and and others, um, have often recognized a kind of pluralistic re- um, legal idea, in the sense that there are there can be religious law for sure, but other kinds of law and other kinds of political authority are recognized alongside that religious law. So, for example, in the medieval Jewish community, there was, of course, halakha, 
But there were all, there were also um, lay courts that um, had judges who were not rabbis and did not judge by halacha, but made legislation and judged that legislation um, according to basically laws that were made up by the leaders of the community that was not halachic law. Um, and we could say similar things about Christian and Islamic communities in the Middle Ages and others um, that, that had some kind of legally pluralistic conception of legal authority. Um, when it comes to the other position that the idea of the halachic state really got going in the 1970s, I think that that can't be discounted completely. Obviously, there was something that happened in religious Zionist society um, that changed things after the 67 war. Um, but what I argue is that um, the real change, or, or, or another change at least, happened still earlier, um, at the end of the 1940s. And I, 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 I say that really it was around 1948 that religious Zionist leaders um, converted their thinking from being more sort of pluralistic, more accommodationist to the possibility of different legal regimes all sitting side by side happily in one state, uh, religious um, religious norms and also democratic norms living side by side to a more um, principled position, a more principled uh, position that I, that's called legal centralism, the idea that there's only room for one single legal system in the state. And for the religious leaders, that, that position was halakha. And why do you think it came about or was embraced in 1948? <laughs> so that is that is a really interesting question, and I think that the answer to that question is extremely um, ironic, in my opinion. And I'll I'll tell you why I think it's it's so ironic. Um, the background to this is that before 1948, there were of course religious Zionist thinkers, and many of them were struggling with this question of what should be the legal regime if a Jewish state becomes established. So religious leaders writing in the 20s, the 30s, even in, well, even well into the 40s were, were grappling with this question. And the reason why it was such a difficult question is because um, although they, of course, wanted halakha to have a prominent role in the state, they also recognized that halakha is... Um, it's not straightforward to apply halakha in a democratic context. After all, um, certainly the orthodox versions of halakha that they were embedded in um, discriminated in different ways, distinguished between men and women, between Jews and non-Jews. And they knew that in a democratic state, that obviously wasn't going to fly. Um, so they had to come up with some kind of way that halakha could be important but um, there was still room for a democratic law that um, that, um, that that would work in the in the context they were living in, and the conclusion they came to was that this version of legal pluralism that Jewish society had adhered to for centuries, the sense that there can be a two or more legal authorities within the same political territory, that's the the idea that they alighted on. And I think it was very natural for them to, to think in those terms. They thought of Israel almost as a kind of continuation of the medieval kahalo or kahila. So the idea was that there would be two systems of law that had authority in the state of Israel. Um, there would be halakha and there would be halachic courts that people could go to if they wanted. 
But there would also be democratic legislation and there would be secular courts that people could go to if they wanted. Um, in other words, there'd be a sort of dual system of, of laws. And that was uh, that idea was was proposed in different forms by by various thinkers in the twenties through to the forties, and it was only at the end of the forties that um, a, a few really key people came along and sort of dashed that idea and and nixed it entirely. And the people I have in mind, really the main character that I focus on is Rabbi um, Yitzhak Isaac Halevi Herzog, who was Israel's first Ashkenazic chief rabbi, um, but also Rabbi Meir Berlin Bar Ilan, who was at the time really this sort of senior figure, um, both in age and also in authority in the religious Zionist movement. And both of these figures at the end of the 40s said, that that idea of a dual legal system of of these kind of parallel um, legal systems one next to the other is unacceptable to them, and they both said it has to be that there is only one legal system in this country, and that legal system is halacha. Um, and they set about trying to put this into practice in very practical terms. They uh, collected committees of, of rabbis and set them the task of writing law books, modern law books, um, that contained in them halachic laws. So their idea was, you know, if nowadays, if you go to law school, you there are law books and they, which contain the statutes of the state, and you have to study them. And if you're a judge, those are the books on your in your library that you refer to when you make judgments. And these people, um, Herzog, Barilan, and others had in mind that there would be law books exactly like that for the state of Israel, but the laws in them would be halakha. And the um, committees that they set up, they tasked them with basically translating halakha into something that looked more like a modern law, but actually had exactly the same um, the same norms as the, the halakhic system. So they were very practically minded about this. And the real question then, and this is the question that you asked me a few moments ago, the real question is, why did this change? And um, what happened so abruptly at the end of the 40s that led to this led to this turnaround? And the question is even deeper than the question of why did the change happen when we recognize that actually People like Herzog and Barilan, who set themselves the task of creating a halachic system, an exclusively halachic system for the state, actually created all kinds of problems for themselves. Because um, halacha, first of all, has these um, uh, has these aspects to it, which are, at the very least are in tension with democracy. And everybody knew that the state of Israel was going to be a democratic state. The UN um, had uh, insisted on that. It was part of the of the vote in, in November 1947. And um, of course, the overwhelming majority of of uh, Zionist leaders at the time were not religious Zionists, but were secular, sometimes even militantly so. So um, there were all these kinds of problems that if if you if you insist on having halakha as an exclusive law, you then set yourself the challenge of how do you account for these tensions with democracy? And moreover, how do you account for all kinds of questions that halakha hasn't really dealt with in the past many, many centuries because halakha has never been the law of of a state before, um, certainly not a certainly not a modern state. So, um, so this really deepens the question of why it is that this shift was made in religious Zionist society from this more pluralistic model to an insistence on on this centralist model. Um, 
So yeah. I, 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 the the reason why I think that happened, um, and this is one of the, this is where I come to what I refer to as a deep irony, is, is this, um, Herzog and Barilan and the other people that I talk about in my book, argued that the reason that they needed halacha to be the exclusive law of a Jewish state was because having um, other laws, having a secular law instead of, uh, of halachic law um, in, in, in governing the state of Israel would be, in their terms, uh, a kind of desecration of God. Um, one of them talked about it being writing a divorce document with God. It was a complete abandonment, in other words, of the religious ideal. They thought, why should we go and and, and sort of a, appeal to all, why should we go and apply over ourselves all of these secular laws when we have the perfect divine law right here? We should just apply it. Um, and, and, and so, in other words, they thought that unless they did this, it would be an abandonment of God. But the irony is that the very idea that there should be in a state a single, exclusive, centralized, hierarchically organized body of law which governs all aspects of legal authority in the state and governs all citizens in the state whether they are jewish or not that idea is very very foreign to the jewish tradition there may be strands of it here and there but by and large it's absent from the jewish tradition and where they got this idea from is modern european christian and post-christian legal theory it's that tradition that argues that a state a territory with borders should have a single um, legal regime that applies to all its citizens. So the irony is that while they were arguing for halakha being the exclusive law of the state, because if not, it would be abandoning the Jewish tradition, in fact, the very idea, the very assertion that a state should have a single centralized system of law is itself borrowed from, itself shares assumptions with the European legal theory that they were claiming to be getting away from. <laughs> it is ironic. And I was also surprised to learn in your book uh, that the institution of the chief rabbinate and the rabbinical court system that it oversees is a modern invention with no precedent in Jewish history. That, in fact, it was an invention of the British Empire that was originally resisted by many rabbis. Tell us about how that came about. Yes, that is a, that is a, a staggering fact um, for given the centrality of the chief rabbinate in the thinking of many um, religious Jewish Israelis today. But that is that is indeed the case. Um, the idea of the rabbinate as a whole, of course, wasn't invented by the British. There have been rabbis, you know, um, obviously for, for 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 a very long time. Um, I mean, since since ancient times, and in um, in Mandate Palestine and before that in Ottoman Palestine, there were of course rabbis and rabbinic courts and rabbinical authorities that were there um, all along. Um, what the British did do, though, was um, sort of invent and impose the idea of a central, a centralized and hierarchically organized um, rabbinate. And what I mean by this, and, and by the way, in, in doing this, um, the British were not doing something sort of special for the Jews in Mandate Palestine. And they did this basically everywhere that they had colonies. Um, it was a very common practice in, in British colonial rule um, that... Um, the the native 
legal systems in whichever place would be kept intact, but would just be sort of reorganized to um, so that they could be fit into British ideas of um, legal organization and legal structures. Um, so, for example, um, when it came to when it came to Mandate Palestine, the British came in and said, "Look, the Jews." Under Ottoman rule and for a really long time have had their, um, certainly their personal status laws, laws of marriage, divorce, and so on, um, been governed by halakha and been judged by um, rabbis. And the British said, we don't want to change that. But we do want to have what the, the, the British said that they did want to have what they considered to be sort of modern and appropriate procedures. So this included a few things. Um, it included, first of all, the principle that there should be a an appeals system within the rabbinical courts. Now, with very few exceptions and dubious exceptions at that, um, there's been no history in, um, in, the whole, in all of the history of halakha, there's been Almost no history of, almost no examples of a court of appeals of halakha. Basically, if a if a rabbinical court rules X, then X stands, and there's very little recourse to overturning that. But the British believed that proper legal procedure needed to have an appeals um, court, and so the um, the court of the rabbinical court of Jerusalem, which was previously just another regional rabbinical court, no different from the one in Jaffa or for, from the one in, from any of the other ones in the country, was turned into a court of appeals and uh, had a, this special standing that the, that the British required. And the British also insisted that the rabbinical courts would have all of these rules of procedure, that the um, decisions um, given handed down by the rabbinical courts should be written out in a proper sort of legal format, um, that, which is something which the Shulchan Aruch, um, the Code of Jewish Law, explicitly says is not required by rabbinical courts. So in other words, the rabbinical courts pre-existed the British, but the British um, insisted that although they didn't want to take authority away from the rabbinical courts, they did want to impose this kind of structure on them, raising up the court in Jerusalem to be a to have the status of a court of appeals, requiring all of these rules of procedure and so on, um, and setting up the structure of the rabbinate as we know it today. And exactly as you said, it was resisted at the time. Not surprisingly, um, the regional rabbinical courts, when they, you know, if the if the court in Jerusalem wrote to them and said, hey, um, we need to, we need your notes on this case because we're reviewing it with the possibility of overturning your verdict. Very commonly, the answer came back, w- w- the answer came back, who, who on earth are you to overturn our ruling? That's not a halakhic <laughs> right. position. We've been an independent court for, since, you know, since time immemorial. Um, but eventually, the, this became ingrained also in religious society and its, and its origins with the British Empire, I think, today have largely been forgotten. Yes, I didn't know about it. Um, but I, I, So how did the institution of the chief rabbinate change from being the preserve of religious Zionist rabbis to being totally dominated by the ultra-Orthodox today? Yes, that is, that is a, 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 a pretty important question, especially I mean, the, the waters are muddied um, a little bit because our definitions of what is religious Zionist versus ultra-Orthodox, um, those categories sometimes sort of merge one into the other. Um, but um, so, for example, um, you, you take a personality like uh, Isaac Herzog, 
who was a very very worldly cosmopolitan person that had a I mean he had a, a he had a PhD from a secular university and so on um, but at the same time I think many of his religious positions would seem relatively well not not all of them but some of them would seem relatively uncompromising by contrast to some of the more kind of progressive orthodox positions today in other words um, things change, um, but you're right. Uh, there's definitely been uh, there's definitely been a shift in the in this this sort of the the, the central uh, the center of gravity of the ideological position of the chief rabbinate, and I think by and large it is less um, explicitly Zionist in its ideology than it was uh, 50 years ago. Um, um, yes, the, the 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 dynamics by which that happened are a little bit beyond the scope of the of the book that I wrote. Okay, uh, well, even given the somewhat fuzzy boundaries of the idea of religious Zionists, um, what what would you say are their criticisms of the Israeli Supreme Court, the secular Supreme Court today? <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is this is a very very interesting. You know, um, but Salal Smotrich, um, who is, um, I, I would say, a, a still a rising um, political figure on the religious right in Israel, just last year in one of the endless um, election cycles that that Israel had, um, made the play for becoming the. Um, Minister of Justice in a new government, and he said that why why he thinks he should be Minister of Justice is that he wants to establish Torah law in Israel. And then somebody said, "But so are you arguing for a halachic state?" And he says, and he said, actually, the real halachic state is the halachic state of of Barak and the the whole Barak court. Um, and what he meant by that was. Um, you, the questioner, think that that you're claiming that the halachic state is this kind of sort of totalitarian, uncompromising um, legal regime. But actually, says Smotrich, he thinks that the real uncompromising, unaccountable, anti-democratic legal regime is that of the um, sort of progressive um, Israeli Supreme Court under Barak in in the, in, 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 you know, about coming mm-hmm. up to sort of 15 20 years ago now right and um, right. that the, the, that began so the criticism there is actually quite an interesting one which is um saying don't look at the difference between the substance of the laws yes i want halakha you want this I, uh, in terms of the uh, the actual norms that we each want look at the structures and he says you claim to have this liberal democratic society but actually it is sort of totalitarian in its own way now right. Um, and that, by the way, is 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 um, is a phenomenon that we see not just in Israel but in other countries too. So, just coming back, for example, to to the American example um, here too, one of the many um, divisions between politics on the left and the right is the question of the place of the Supreme Court and um, you know what some people see as judges who are. Um, holding up people's liberal rights according to the constitution, others see as you know, the unelected, anti-democratic judges legislating from the bench. So this is a this this is an interesting parallel between the two countries. There again, that's right. That's right. So um, as you point out, religious Zionists are not a monolith. 
Um, tell us about the views of Yeshayahu Leibowitz uh, about the roles of uh, religion and the state in Israel. Yes, so he is uh, one of the most uh, fascinating thinkers on this topic. Um, and his position on religion is that it is essentially um, not just unpolitical, but in a sense, um, anti-political. And what I mean by that is that for, for Leibovitz, um, relig- the, the goal, the purpose of religion is to critique political authority and to critique the state. Um, the state is a, a body that has the monopoly or claims for itself the monopoly on violence. The state can um, uh, restrict people's liberties. The, the state can do all kinds of things that, um, that might be dubious or questionable. And religion, the goal of religion or, or Jewish religion is to say that the ultimate authority is not the state, but God that there's something outside of and beyond and transcending the state that is the true source of, of authority ultimately. And why that's a powerful position for him is that it means that religion can critique the failings of the state and its excesses, um, its, its potential for um, overstepping the bounds in terms of violence and uh, affecting the rights of other people and so on. Um, in that respect, religion is a kind of um, sort of is a kind of critical position because it keeps itself apart from politics. It, um, it it creates for itself the possibility of critiquing politics and the excesses of the state. I, I think that's a very, I think that's a very powerful position. Um, what it means, though, is that religion can, um, can't play. A, a more integrated role in political life. Um, and I, I'm not saying that that is a bad thing necessarily, um, but I do think that for many religious people, religious Jews in Israel today, and religious people in, in, in other countries around the world of whatever religious position, and there's this feeling that religion can't just stand apart from and, and critique, but must um, sort of play a role that's a little bit more integrated into political society. So I think Leibovitz is, is a very powerful, has a very powerful position as a critique. And, and by the way, there's a long tradition um, in the Jewish tradition of, of that kind of understanding of religion as standing apart. Um, in, in a sense, it goes back to the prophetic traditions of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and in more modern times, people like Martin Buber talked about um, theocracy um, it, it, as a way of criticizing the worst uh, attributes of, of the modern state. But it does have this downside that it raises the question of how then a religious person is expected to participate in political life exactly. Yes, and, and many writers have pointed out that once, uh, once politics and religion uh, get too close, it is to their mutual detriment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, recently, uh, a prominent Israeli jurist, Ruth Gavison, passed away. Yes. Uh, she was a secular person herself, but about 20 years ago, she and Rabbi Yaakov Maidan uh, wrote a, a very significant document together about a compromise on the tension between religion and state, about what the principles were 
on each side and how they can coexist in harmony in Israel. Whatever happened to that document and that work? <laughs> yes, that was a that was a wonderful document, and it was not only a wonderful document, but I think a, a wonderful moment of um, two people um, um, who who came from very different backgrounds, had very different ideological positions, but were really treating each other with an openness and with a sense of, of believing in the good faith of the other party. And the document was uh, was a really interesting um, product of of what might come about in, in, in the sense of a compromise between these two positions. I think, honestly, that what happened to it was um, was the second intifada, was the breakdown of Oslo, um, was subsequently the Hidnat Kut, the, the, the um, very contentious... Um, um, moment in which the state of Israel pulled out of of Gaza, I think that um, it, the, that document was written in a moment where you know of, of a kind of Rabin era where compromise seemed possible, peace seemed possible, and change seemed seemed possible, and then suddenly those doors started to close and positions became hardened and sectors of society became further from each other and more suspicious of each other and less open to each other. And and, and that's a unfortunately a a trend that has only continued in, in recent years. So I think it was a document that came out of a particular moment of promise. Um, but it, it, one of the casualties of subsequent history was the the failure to to act on it. Hmm. And so, in your view, what is the best way to balance religion and law, religion and state? <laughs> that is the million dollar question, um, or the four hundred million shekel question. <laughs> Um, or whatever, whatever the exchange rate um, happens to be at the moment. Um, yeah, the that's the um, that's that's a that's really the question, and I'm going to give you an answer, and I already sense that it's going to be unsatisfactory, but nonetheless, I'm I'm sticking with it, um, and that answer is that there is no one answer, um, and there is there is no, and, and I mean that in two senses. First of all. That there is no one answer in the sense of a kind of formula of relationships between religious and secular politics that can be applied in every context, whether it be you know every country or every period of time. Um, in other words, the answer in America might be, and I'm certain is, different from the answer in Israel or in Iraq or in Ireland or and, and so on. Um, so there is no one answer in the sense that different societies will have different dynamics, different histories. And therefore, different answers to that question. But the other answer is that there's no. The, the other thing I mean by there's no one answer is that, that there can't be a permanent resolution to this. I, I honestly believe that it, it will be um, potent, certainly extremely difficult and potentially impossible to come up with a document of principles that can be put into place and say, okay, now this is the answer to our question um, when it comes to Israel, and we'll just have this way going forward for the next. You know, however many centuries, I think mm -hmm. that's because societies are dynamic, because the borders between the sectors of society are porous, because there's intellectual exchange, because there are external political developments that shunt things in one direction or another. Um, 
the question of the relationship between these two things is never going to be fixed. It's always going to be a negotiation. Um, it's going to be a negotiation between values, between different um, sectors of society, between their interests and, and so on. If there's going to be, um, if, if there is something which I think can be some kind of solution, um, it's not in terms of, you look, here are my th three ideas for how things can change for the better in practice, but rather in, in attitude. Um, I think um, right now, because of the um, because of the tremendous history of tensions and clashes and very very sort of reason, for good reason sort of high running tempers between um, people in different camps, it's just very very difficult for people to talk to each other. And I think what one of the things that could really help is a recognition, like a, a genuine belief that people who disagree with you may be doing it for genuine reasons. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean that you have to go along with what they say. And it certainly doesn't mean that you have to adopt their values. But rather, um, ra rather instead of saying that person um, is a bad faith actor, that person is really just after power and all of this religion or secular um, discourse is just a kind of masking for that, just to come with an openness to the possibility that people have deep feelings, passions, commitments, fears often that are sometimes expressed in, in political or, or religious language. Now, that's not to say that there aren't just power-hungry people acting in, in bad faith, um, you know, narcissists, sociopaths, these people most certainly exist. <laughs> but I think by and large, um, by and large, that's not what we're dealing with when we look at, you know, the bulk of, of people. So that's not really a solution for, um, uh, you know, a practical answer. But it's a question of a sort of attitude um, that may help um, things. And then the last thing well, I'll I say. Have... Oh, oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, please go ahead. No, you take, take <laughs> complete your thought, please. <laughs> okay. So j just the last the last point on this is that one of the things that I've really tried to show in my book is that even when you have two positions that appear to be fundamentally opposed to each other, they can have under the uh, under the surface all kinds of shared assumptions. Um, so, just to sort of pad that out with, a, with, a, with with an example in practice, I think that when it comes to the clash between religious and secular approaches to um, legal authority in the state of Israel, so should it be a secular democracy or should it be a a halachic state, these appear to be just fundamentally opposed positions. But underlying those positions is a, is the, is, is a similarity, which is that there is a belief that a state should have a single system of law um, in a single uh, legal hierarchy, which should be applied to all the citizens in that state. Um, and that's not something that goes without saying. Like I said that earlier, that's not something that was around for a long time in the Jewish tradition. So even um, behind very um, apparently opposed uh, positions, there can be all kinds of similarities, and that can lead to room for conversation and discussion also. Well, I, I think you have some good advice there. And it sounds like the uh, the Gavison Maidan model of mutual respect, despite very different worldviews, is one that would be worth uh, revisiting. Uh, I, Alexander, you've given us a lot to think about, uh, and I'm going to let you go soon. 
But uh, first, I want to hear about what you're working on now. Oh, thank you for asking. That's a really nice question. Um, so I, I'm working on a, I'm working on a couple of projects at the moment. Um, one of them is a sort of an, an other branch of the stuff that we've been talking about now, which is um, the uh, basically a, a sort of legal history of the kibbutz harati, the religious kibbutz movement, um, because a lot of the historical trends that we discuss today, which are true of religious Zionist society as a whole, um, were not true of the religious kibbutz movement, certainly in its early years um, in the sort of 40s, 50s, and 60s. And there's all kinds of fascinating legal theory that they bring to this. And, you know, the last question you asked me is, you know, what is what are ways that uh, we could think differently in the future or more productively in the future? I think that some of the thinking that they had um, and other characters at the same time, especially some um, Sephardi uh, rabbis in, in those years um, could be really, really productive and interesting. Um, so that's one project. And the other project I'm working on right now is um, a project about Galut, um, the idea of Galut, um, the idea of Jewish exile, um, and specifically the idea of Jewish exile as it has played out in the modern imagination of Jews and of others, how it plays into questions of um, creativity, the diasporic imagination, um, comparative perspectives between Jewish ideas of the diaspora and other um, communities' ideas of the diaspora, for example, the African-American diaspora and so on. So Galut is, is, is the thing for me, it, for my current scholarship as well. Wow, both are very interesting topics. And uh, well, I'll look forward, I'll stay tuned and look forward to see what emerges from your work. Thanks so much, Renee. Thank you. Alexander, thank you for your important work in this book and for being on the show today. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff.